You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Let me start with a question. How do you respond when you face some incomplete goal or some unfulfilled dream? Maybe you had a vision for your life. And, uh, you know, for, you were going to be walking down a certain path. But, but the reality is when you look at your life right now, you haven't even begun on that path. In fact, you can't even find the path. Or, or, or maybe you're on the path, but the journey is going so much slower than you ever anticipated. You know, I had to face that in an area when it comes to, when it comes to writing. Um, writing was something I aspired to. But it didn't come in the way I expected, and it certainly didn't come in the timetable I predicted. In fact, for a long stretch, probably well over 15 years, it didn't come at all. Maybe you can relate to this. It was one of those things in my life where I had a desire, I had a dream of doing something, but it was always just out of reach. Writing became... It just began to represent something like, a, like an elephant burial ground in my life, something where my, my dream, the place where my dreams went to die. You know what I mean? Do you have any area like that? Some incomplete goal, some unfulfilled dream or desire that, that kind of hovers over you like a dark cloud And if you're honest, you'll admit that it it, it settles upon you in the form of a statement. It's a statement that stalks you and haunts you and taunts you as it whispers this paralyzing thought of, by now, you should have been, and you fill in the blank. Let's personalize it. By now, I should have been married. By now, I should have been financially stable. By now, I should have been healthy or had a better job or better kids or, or a better life. And if we don't, may not realize it, but that statement, by now, I should have been, is the voice of an unsatisfied desire. And we may not be aware of it, but it can also be the voice of discontent. Discontentment happens when our ambitions are frustrated. We aspire to something, but God doesn't deliver it. And so we kind of stew in self-pity and wonder why God is so sloppy in the way that he runs our life. Because we have not what we desire. Now, I want to say very quickly that to desire health, to desire leadership or stability or or, 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 or a role is not a wrong thing. It can actually be a sign of very good and very strong ambitions and good and godly dreams. But the real issue is how we live and how we feel and how we relate to God when we don't get what we want when we want it. Because when desires become demands, we become discontent because we have not what we desire. Now, there's several things I want to talk about this morning, but I want to telegraph to you right up front where we're headed. 
what, something that I believe is a key to contentment. And it's summed up in the words of one of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, who once said, quote, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Now, I'm going to explain that in a little while and, and also acknowledge that that's our destination where we're going. But let's, for the moment, let's just <clears throat> move that off to the side, kind of leave that hanging in suspended animation. And let's return to Philippians chapter 4 and to Paul and the context and a little line upon line exposition of this passage. And so once again, we meet Paul. And keep in mind, Paul is not at this moment of writing to the Philippians perched atop a customized writing desk on a cushioned high back chair. He's in prison and, 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 and he's confined. And some commentators suggest that he was, he's chained to a Roman guard. And he's writing to the Philippians. Now, Philippians are a good church, but like all good churches, they have problems. Where you have people, you have problems. And so the Philippians have their problems as well. They tend to revolve around the issue of disunity, and they're having some conflicts, and Yodi and Syntyche are having conflict, and there's all kind of things like that going on. And the thing is, Paul wants to help. Paul wants to help, but he's in prison. He can't get to them. If you've ever been in a situation where someone you love is having a problem and you can't help them, you can't get to them, you're blocked from being able to intervene with them, then you can identify with what's going on with Paul. And so he sends this letter. Now in chapter four, he addresses specifically their, their financial support. He, he thanks God for it, but then he says he doesn't need it. Because Paul had learned to live having not all that he desired. In fact, let's just listen to him talk about it in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Again, this is the financial need. But it's clearly more than the financial need because he goes on to say, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, whatever situation I am, to be content. Now, now, let's just tap the brakes for a second and think about what Paul's saying here and, and actually who is saying it as well. Because Paul is in prison, but he's not in need. Paul is in prison and restrained, but not in need. Paul's in prison, restrained, constrained, potentially shackled to a, to a Roman guard, but he's not in need. How does that work? Well, well Paul describes how it works. He says he has unlocked a secret, what Jeremiah Burroughs once called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And this is how Paul describes it. He says, in whatever situation I am, I have learned to be content. And so as to not leave us speculating on exactly what he means, he basically colors within the picture. He fills us in on what, he's, what exactly that means. He says, I can abound and I can be brought low. I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need without being plagued by that question and statement of by now I should have been somewhere else than where I am or someone else than who I am. 
In other words, we're, you know, Paul is able to be satisfied and at peace with God in all situations. In fact, Paul is able to be satisfied and at peace with God in all situations without abandoning his dreams. And I say that because sometimes when our dreams are not being satisfied, when our desires are not being fulfilled, when life is not going in the way that we expect it, one of the ways that we try to punish God, yeah, that's the word I'm using, one of the ways we try to punish God for the poor decisions that he's making in our life is by giving up our aspirations for him. Because the average Christian is not gonna say, oh, I know I've given 20 years to this, but, and God, things aren't really delivering the way I expected, so I'm just gonna bail out. No, no, what, what we do is we say, oh, oh, I get it, God, I understand. You have all the sovereignty, you have all the control, you have all the power. I get no information, I get no understanding, I get no interpretation. And so rather than just being excited about you and radical about you, I'm not bailing out, I'm just moving off the field and I'm taking a seat in the stands. And if you want me, I'm not gonna be in the game, I'm gonna be withdrawn over here. And yet we see Paul, who is constantly encountering these situations where it didn't turn out the way he expected. It didn't go in the way he desired. He has these ambitions to preach the gospel all the way to Spain and all over the world. And yet now he's sitting in prison and we're learning as we're observing this passage that for Paul, his sense of significance was not situational. His sense of significance was not tied to his status. In other words, his peace did not rest in anything outside of his relationship with God. So he could move in and out of these seasons and still not be disrupted because his expectations were not being met. Because people didn't like him in one place. or You know, I was reading this biography by Jonathan Edwards there was just this passing comment about Edwards' life that where the biographer says, quote, he says of Edwards, quote, that his, his happiness was outside of the reach of his enemies. And I'm, I remember reading it thinking, can, can that be said of me that my happiness is outside of the reach of my enemies. What, what about you? Is your, is your happiness outside of the reach of your boss or of your career trajectory? Or let's, let's make it a good thing even. Is your happiness outside of the reach of your family or of the next election? Because all of this is just another way to explore the degree to which we are content. Now, I get it. We read Paul and we think, well, yeah, I mean, this is Paul talking. And I mean, it just seems untouchable for us. This is just a Paul thing. This must be, I don't know, is this like a consolation prize? You go to the third heaven, you leave, you get contentment as a result of being there. Because he's always seems to be rolling in a power that we don't have. But see, that's not the way Paul presents himself here. Paul says in verse 11, I have learned the secret. See, this one is not included with conversion, don't you wish it was? Don't you wish this contentment thing kind of could come in an email 
maybe an attachment to an email. Click, apply, boom, it's in. I'm transformed. I'm content. I mean, my wife would love that for me. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Paul says, I have learned. I have acquired. I have developed. And the good news for us this morning is it was available to him and it's available to us as well. You say, Dave, well, how does that work? Well, I mean, let's just keep reading and find out how it worked for Paul. Verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. So Paul basically specifies the field of experience for all contentment. And he's using all of these different words, but the words actually group pretty easily into two different sets of experience. On one side, he's talking about abounding and plenty and abundance. He's talking about the good times. And you, you know what that looks like. I mean, maybe for you, it's you get a raise and, and you weren't expecting it, but they seem to be able to perceive and acknowledge the contribution that you're making at work and, and they, they, they assign value to it. Or, or a prayer has been answered that you've been praying for so long and, and, and now it's been answered or, 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 or you're pregnant and, and, and you and your husband or you and your wife have been trying for so long and, 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 and now it's happening. In other words, these are the times where our, our dreams are coming alive and life is getting good and our ambitions are fat and happy. To adapt the Watson quote, we have what we desire. Now, don't miss this. This is what Paul says. Paul says, yeah, I know how to do that. I know how to do. Now, <laughs> isn't there this instinct that we, that we all think, I, uh, Paul, yeah, I mean, don't we all, Lord, Lord, doth you doubt that thy servant David knows how to do prosperity and plant? Lord, smite me with a Lexus and I will show thee, I will show thee that I can do abundance. I can do abounding. And you know, our, our dreams are always dreams of abounding, aren't they? I mean, think about it. Our dreams, they're, they're about abundance and abounding. It's, it's, it's rare to dream low, isn't it? It's, Johnny wants to be homeless. Go, Johnny, go. You know, we, we never find ourselves saying those kinds of things. Because to dream is to aspire to a better future. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that's coming out that, that we're learning from Paul. That, that our happiness can't be linked to a satisfied dream. That our happiness can't be linked to a dream of the future where we are in constant ascent, where we are in constant prosperity. Because always abounding just isn't reality, but also there's a second reason, and that is sometimes our greatest temptations can come not through trial, not through affliction, but through plenty and abounding and, and praise. I mean, there's an amazing like 
little proverb tucked away in chapter 27, verse 21, where, where it says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. You, you don't expect it to end that way. You think as you're reading that, oh, I know where this is going. I think for sure it's man is tested by his affliction. A woman is tested by the trials she walks. No, a man is tested by his praise. Think about the metaphors that are being called forth here. The crucible, the furnace, they, they basically both test things by heating things. And so what we're learning from this proverb is that praise heats the soul and praise tests the soul in a way that perhaps trials and temptations do not or trials and afflictions do not. And praise reveals things about the soul that may not come to surface in an experience of affliction. I mean, think about the book of Esther. In Esther, you have Haman, who's, who's second in the kingdom, and, and, and everyone bows to pay homage to Haman except one guy. Who's that? Yeah, Mordecai. And so <clears throat> the book of Esther reports that Haman lives the rest of his life largely grateful that almost everyone in the kingdom bows and pays homage to him, that 99.999% that of the people bow and pay homage to him, right? No, not at all. Haman launches a campaign to exterminate all the Jews. Why? Because one man would not praise him. The praise of most was not enough. The praise of almost everyone was not enough. He was only satisfied by the praise of all. What's ha what happened? His heart was tested. Praise revealed his heart. Charles Spurgeon once said, and I quote, the Christian more often disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he's being abased. And see, here's the thing. Paul says, I understand that. Paul was able to discern that there were equal temptations that awaited him in abounding and abundance and plenty. And so he treated plenty and hunger just the same. He treated them both as places where he could potentially find his satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. And so that's the one set of experiences. But then Paul describes a whole... <clears throat> other set of experiences as well. He talks of being brought low, facing hunger, facing needs. He's talking about the hard times. He's talking about the by now we should have been times. And maybe that's hitting you smack in the face this morning. Maybe just, just this past week you were, you were passed over for work for some role at work, or, or, or the business is tanking. Or maybe some friend that, where you always thought your road would be right next to one another has, has totally disappointed you, and, and you feel a sense of betrayal in that, and you're just, trying to, you're just trying to reconcile the reality of all that's been said with what seems to have happened, and the reality for you is it just feels like your dreams are on a respirator gasping for air. 
I mean, isn't that how we're coming out of the pandemic? So many people feeling, I don't know, is it, it's, it's powerless, it's, it's impotent, it's kind of ambivalent. Friendships disconnected. Ambitions starving. To, to use the quote, we have not what we desire. So here again, Paul says, yeah, I've, I've learned how to do that too. I have learned to be brought low. Learned to be brought low. I, I think that means he could, he could be content with unsatisfied dreams, with, even with, with failure. In fact, that the lessons of contentment seem so important to God for Paul that God would ordain that Paul be brought low. God would ordain that Paul have a, a thorn in his side, some, some weakness that slowed him down intentionally that he might learn things about God, that he might appropriate the grace of God. And Paul's not alone in that experience. How does that connect with you this morning? I mean, is it, is it an unexpected illness? Because we all have these. Sometimes we have them for our entire life. Sometimes it's just in seasons. It can be a layoff. It can be a financial hit. It can be something large. It can be something small. It could be just, <clears throat> for us, the, the difficulty of kind of kick-starting our life at the end of the, what we hope is the end of, of the pandemic. Where is God revealing your weakness right now, your limitations right now? Is it a big thing? Is it a small thing? Is it a boulder in the road that's kind of blocking you from moving forward? Maybe it's just a little pebble in the shoe that, 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 that creates this limp as you try to move forward. <laughs> well, one day, <clears throat> one day I was, I was sitting in our family room reading. Uh, Kim was over on the couch. I was sitting on the chair. Kim thought she heard the water running in the basement. So she says to me, one of the kids in the basement shower? And I listened. I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. And she said, oh, okay. I said, oh, okay. And I kind of went back to reading. About 10 minutes later, this thought kind of pierced my consciousness. I thought, wait a minute. We don't have a basement shower. <laughs> and then I thought, and I do hear water running. And so I got up and I ran down the steps and I looked around the corner and there was a hole in our wall and behind the hole there was a pipe and there was a hole in the pipe and the pipe was shooting water all the way across the basement, and it was splashing across the, wa the wall on the other side of the basement. And actually, the first time I saw it, I thought, wow, this is pretty, look at this, this is pretty amazing. And then I realized, this is my house. I've got a problem. So somehow, you know, like when I was growing up, I missed the what to do when the pipes break and you need to shut down the water real quickly class in high school. <clears throat> So I did the best I could, which is just kind of run around the basement and flip light switches and turn knobs and, and, and do whatever I could, and nothing was helping. So I've got a neighbor, Ralph. Yeah. 
Ralph's one of these guys who just knows how to do everything, you know, and has all the tools. And, and hey, Ralph, what, what are you doing this? Well, I had a couple of extra hours this weekend, so I decided to put a, an addition onto the house. And <laughs> <clears throat> next week's project is the helipad on the top, you know. <laughs> so Kim gets on the phone. Ralph, it's Dave. It happened again. He's in the basement. He needs help. So I'm standing in the basement, three inches of water. Ralph comes through the basement door. He locks eyes upon me, and, and I'm standing over there. He locks eyes. He walks across the basement. He opens a closet door, keeps his eyes locked on me, reaches his arm in, turns a knob, water shuts off, turns around, eyes remain locked, and walks out the basement door. <laughs> Now, those are low moments, <laughs> and we all have them. And, and that's a more comical one, but, but, but they get much worse, don't they? Let me ask it to you this way. Where is the pipe gushing in your house right now? Is it marriage? Is it parenting? Is it adult parents and dealing with the complexities. I, I've mentioned the, the pandemic several times, you know, the way it's just reshuffled our lives and, and, and kind of ransacked our rhythms. But another way to say all of that is that it's laying us low. And here Paul comes along and says, yeah, I know how to do that. I've learned to be laid low, which means here we're encountering a man who is equally satisfied preaching before King Agrippa or when his life and liberty basically stop because he's imprisoned. And so I guess it makes me want to ask all of us, you know, how do you do when your dreams and your life don't intersect, when they, when they miss one another, when, when life just seems to force you down and lay you low rather than, rather than lift you up. How, how do you do? How are you doing right now in that situation? You know, <clears throat> we, we kind of expect the Christian life to be this kind of journey where we're walking down a hallway and there are doors on both sides of the hallway and God will lead us through one door and maybe keep another door shut. But then every once in a while, God will make it clear in some way that we're supposed to go through this door and we come to the door convinced that God has led us. We have prayed to get us to that door. We've sought counsel to go beyond that door. We're convinced that God's will lies beyond that door. In fact, we think God is beyond that door waiting for us to come through it. And we try the door and the door is locked. Some of you right now standing in front of a locked door. In fact, we try the door again and it's bolted. And it will not yield. And we push against the door with our shoulder. And it will not yield. And we beat against the door. We bloody our hands against the door. But the door will not yield. And eventually we become so exhausted at trying to get through the door that we collapse at the foot of it, unable to reconcile the idea that we had a desire 
that we thought was inspired by God that is not being satisfied. And then eventually we, we refresh ourselves as we're laying there with the reality of the sovereignty of God. We dust ourselves off and we get going down the hallway again. And yet we, we can feel and live so disheartened because we can't conceive of the idea of a God that might inspire desires he does not satisfy, that might give us a dream that he might not fulfill. I mean, we have clear examples in Scripture of Moses standing on the outside of the land of Canaan. We have, we have Paul at the end of his life saying, at my last defense, no one stood by me. Everyone, everyone betrayed me. Everyone stood, stood away from me. But, but Jesus was there. Different examples, not recognizing that some works in the soul are so significant that they can only be achieved by an unsatisfied dream. There are some places that God wants to go in you and some, some areas of unbelief, some idolatries that exist that can only be surfaced in a dream, so only be dislodged by a desire that remains unsatisfied. So again, I'm putting the question forward of how are you doing in that situation? How are you doing when your dreams and your life don't intersect, when you feel like you're being laid low, when life seems to be forcing you down rather than lifting you up? Are we operating with... With, with not simply an, a, a biblical idea of contentment, but with a biblical vision of, of success. I, I brought a quote with me this morning by J.I. Packer, who once said, <clears throat> quote, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. Can I make an appeal to you this morning? I just want to make one appeal. I want to try to get your attention on one important matter, and that is don't buy the world's vision of success. Please don't buy the world's vision of success. Don't buy a vision of success that says there's no place for trial, no place for failure, no place for an unsatisfied ambition, no place for he must increase, but I must decrease. People live their life craving worldly success, never realizing that sometimes God will ordain our hunger to save our soul. That God is more committed to our rescue than our earthly success. And here's the thing, Paul got it. It's how he found peace in prison that his success, his vision of success was not tied to ascent. It was not tied to a vision where he always needed to be moving forward or perceived a certain way by his peers. In fact, he learned a secret that linked his identity to something in the past, not something in the present or something in the future 
which is why the entire line of thought converges in verse 13. It is the secret of contentment unveiled. And this is how Paul says it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul completes the lesson. Paul wants us to understand both the secret and the source of his strength and his contentment. And this is how he says it. You ready? He says, it is him who strengthens me. And of course, him who strengthens Paul is the same of him who strengthens us. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're discovering here that contentment is learned by becoming experts at examining and enjoying what it means to be in Jesus Christ. That our union with Christ, which has been purchased for us through the death and resurrection of our substitutionary Savior, our union with Christ carries power. And it gives us strength. It gives you strength today, not tomorrow, today. It gives you strength to see God in your circumstances, even when you're chained. Do you feel chained right now? Do you feel confined? Any moms with small children, you're at home, who just feel like, this is my world. I I feel confined to this world. There is a power being made available to you because of Jesus Christ that gives you strength so that you're not living feeling confined strength to see God even when we feel strength, even when we feel chained. Strength to do all things through him who strengthens us. Strength to believe that God is treating us right now, regardless of what's happening in our life, that somehow God is treating us right now according to his goodness, according to his loving kindness. And that because of what he accomplished on the cross, that he continues to make that available to us. And that's good enough, that that's something that feeds us each and every day in a way that makes a difference where we can live out of that and not with what we don't have. Which kind of returns us all the way back to the quote by Thomas Watson If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. And I say that because at the heart of discontent is kind of, it's this fundamental conviction. It's, It's thinking about our life, thinking about our situation, and coming to this conclusion. It's like, I don't have what I deserve. I'm not getting what I deserve. I deserve so much more than what I'm living in right now. And here's the gospel comes to us and the gospel answers that idea with this cheery news. You're absolutely right. You're not getting what you deserve and you can thank God for that. Because at the heart of discontent is the subtle comparison that produces the idea that we deserve better, but the gospel comes and the gospel turns our complaint on its head and reminds us that regardless of our state, whether it's humble or exalted, plenty or hunger, abundance or need, regardless of our state, we live infinitely above what we really deserve. That what we deserve was portrayed for us on the cross, that Jesus was there as our substitute. He took our place. 
He bore our sins, not the sins that he committed, but the sins that you and I committed. He represented us and died in our place. That's what we deserved. See, most people think that discontent could be solved by by just kind of comparing ourselves, like visiting some impoverished area or maybe going to a prison or engaging people on some level where what we're encountering in life is, seems to be better than what they're encountering because there's this assumption that the key to contentment is just comparing ourselves with those in less favorable situations, which can be helpful, but it's not the point. The point is we don't ultimately find contentment by comparing ourselves to those who are worse off. We find contentment by comparing what we have to what our sins deserved. We find contentment by remembering the gospel. See, it's the gospel that reminds us of what we deserve. It's the gospel that reminds us, I mean, do you remember how how it was? We were spiritually wretched, that we were lost and miserable and and broken. And, And what's more, we clung prideful to that place And even in our pride, we were powerless to do anything to alter our circumstances whatsoever. And then we were just incomprehensibly committed to that mindset, committed to our own destruction. Do you remember that? But God, who was rich in mercy, came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and wrenched us free of our irrational commitment to our own destruction. And by dying in our place, he he gave us reason to live and, and hope that we would live again. And then the power to do all things through him who strengthens us, even in the days of historic disruptions like a pandemic. And so Paul traces a line between the gospel and the prison, and he writes over it contentment, because that's the secret of contentment. And when we have it, it frees us to be at rest in the present and still dream, dream about the future. I mean, Paul sat in prison content, yet he still had great ambitions to do great things. And so we too must live at peace in the present while we still burn for more and ask for more and press for more and strive for more and pray for more and live for more. And yes, if necessary, die for more. So... If you're here today and you have not what you desire, take heart, take comfort, don't take a break, because if you have not what you desire, we have more than we deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take these gospel realities and you would burn them, burn them in our heart, God. Lord, that this truth would have legs for us when we leave today, 
because we're going back into the world that we came from. Or we're going back to our homes and our jobs and our places, our spaces, our neighborhoods. And, and, and we want to be the embodiment of contentment. Lord, we want our lives to make a statement about what we really believe we deserve. We want to be able to be among the world saying, we, we know how to be brought low. Lord, help us to do that. And thank you for promising that you will give us your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.